covenant of blood. This is what some Israelis call a law that requires all Druze men to serve in the Israeli army. If you read the Israeli newspapers on the debates that they have around the practice of compulsory military service in general, especially with things like the exemptions that they have for religious groups such as the Haredi Jews, you will begin to understand how important it is to your average Israeli Jewish person. They see it as this necessary and shared burden to protect the state in which they live. In theory, and by law, every citizen in Israel is equal, but completing military service becomes this rite of passage that is almost necessary for better integration and in some ways better opportunities in life. Of course, when it comes to practicalities, there are medical exemptions and exemptions of different types, but we'll look at that in regards to the Druze minority a little bit later. If you are thinking that this is coming off as quite nationalistic, that's because it is, and it reminds me of one of my favorite films of all time, Starship Troopers. It is one of those Hollywood science fiction action films set in a slightly dystopian future. It is nothing like the book, and if you take it seriously, then you will completely miss the point. But the essence of Starship Troopers is to criticize or outright mock the idea of militaristic societies. And in this film, humanity is united under a world government known as the Terran Federation. Everyone is classed as civilian until they complete their federal service, and that is when they become a citizen, granting them the power to vote or making it easier to get a license for having children, an idea that I have heard people kind of joke about. Of course, Israel is not identical, and it is not that extreme. Yet this idea of completing military service to really and truly be a part of society leaves us with a question. For it is true that all Druze men are required to serve and that they actually have a service rate of 80% and I have seen figures put as high as 84% compared to Israeli Jews at 50%. So what happens if a Druze man refuses to serve, especially on moral or ethical grounds? What you start to see is this thin, invisible, but significant dividing line in Israeli society. And Samih al-Qasim, himself a Druze, would find himself on the side of not serving out of refusal, unlike many of his Druze compatriots. And for that, he would be jailed. But this would only be the first of many times that he would find himself imprisoned or under house arrest for his anti-government and pro-Palestinian views or for writing certain poems. And this is why I want to look at today's poem, Khatimatun Nikash Ma'asajjan, End of the Discussion with the Jailer. It is quite short, so I will recite it in English and then Arabic. Afterwards though, I would like to expand a little bit more on the Druze in Israeli society and military service, and some other possible underlying meanings. But for now, the poem. From the eye-hole of my small cell, I can see the trees smiling at me, and the roofs filled with my people, and windows weeping and praying for me. From the eye-hole of my small cell, I can see your large cell. Min kuwati zinzanatil sughra, absuru asjaran tabsumuli, wa sutuhan yamla'uha ahli. ونوافذ تبكي وتصلي من أجلي من كوة زنزانة صغرى 
أبصروا زنزانتك الكبرى When I was looking at Samih al-Qasim's background, I discovered that beneath the image of the Druze in Israel being this loyal and well-integrated minority, there was and is a resistance, and not everything is as it seems. Like any group of people, there are divisions and disagreements within. But at the same time, it was almost like there was a narrative being propagated, which was not entirely accurate, even if there was a grain of truth. When the law was passed for all Druze men to serve in 1956, so eight years after the State of Israel was established, the Druze Initiative Committee was later created in opposition. They saw this policy as part of a broader effort to create a cultural and social divide between the Druze and other Palestinian Arabs. It was like a deal. You serve in the military and you will be treated favorably. On the other hand, those Palestinians who remained within the borders of Israel after the 1948 war and are now dubbed Israeli Arabs are not required to serve in the army, though they have the option of enlisting. This tactic of divide and conquer seemed to work. To this day, there is a stereotype that Palestinians, especially those living under the military occupation, hold against the Druze as traitors for serving in such high numbers in a military that enforces an occupation upon them. People like Simih al-Qasim, who technically had Israeli citizenship, is an example of this resistance against the status quo. Today, there is a Druze movement called Refuse, Your People Will Protect You, which runs alongside the still-existing Druze Initiative Committee. Organizations like this are part of a wider network of what is called in Israel military refuses or refuseniks, that also includes Israeli Jews. They see the overall militarism in society as damaging, and the Druze-centered organizations are trying to repair this constructed stereotypes that other Palestinian Arabs hold of the Druze people. I have even read on their pages suggestions that this was originally a classic divide-and-conquer tactic used by Israel in its early days, one that was used by colonial powers often. The Druze, though Arabic speakers and considered Arabs, are even listed as a separate ethnic group in Israeli identification documents. There is a very important difference, however. From what I understand, Israeli Jews can be conscientious objectors, which are those people who believe in pacifism as a principle, but the Druze do not have that option. If they refuse, a jail term and lack of opportunity is a certainty. The implication in this difference is that Israeli Jews can have legitimate and moral reasons for not joining a military out of principle. And there is a whole history on the idea of conscientious objection in militaries around the world. Whereas a Druze person's most probable reason for refusing to serve can never be one of pacifism or principle as such, but rather because of identifying with the Arab and Palestinian side of their identity, as we will come to see. And this is where things become nuanced. This prospect of opportunity in life, the social pressure, the thin dividing line of truly belonging and not belonging, the lack of a conscientious objection option, means that when Druze do serve in the military, it is not always about loyalty or patriotism. An article by Haaretz, an Israeli newspaper, 
goes into a lot of detail about how the lack of infrastructure and investment in Druze communities, the lack of opportunity or industry in their towns, and even their conservative practice of starting families at a young age, all contribute to serving in the military for a decent living, and avoiding things like higher academic education, which in turn can hold them back from an economic and social point of view. What's very telling is that cases where people refused to serve and were subsequently jailed have remained undisclosed and confidential until recently. Although the numbers of Druze who refused to serve remain relatively small, we are told that the Israeli security establishment, which meets at this annual conference in Herzliya, has expressed worries about this trend of Druze people not only refusing to serve, but of rejecting their Israeli identity and embracing a Palestinian one. One such case was for a Druze violinist, uh, Omar Saad, who openly talked about his father also refusing to serve and of his family instilling an Arab-Palestinian identity in him over a distinctly Israeli one. Alongside all of this, we also have allegations of Druze men facing harsher punishments and jail terms compared to their Jewish counterparts. A study by Haifa University found that two-thirds of Druze men would actually refuse military service if given the choice, although I have not found the original study itself, I have seen it quoted in an article, it would have been good to look at their methods and the finer details. One event that seems to have forced many Israeli Druze to reflect upon their identity and what it means was in 2018, when Israel passed the so-called nation-state bill. I've mentioned this bill previously when I was talking about the view that Israel is sliding towards authoritarianism as a consequence of the military occupation and its roots in wanting to build an ethnically homogenous society. Essentially, it sets out the right of self-determination within Israel for the Jewish people alone, including the right of quote-unquote settlement, which refers to the settlements of the occupied Palestinian territories. It bears the status of a basic law, which is like a constitutional law, and the intent behind it seems to be to cement the overall Jewish identity of the state of Israel. It does not include the Druze or any other minorities, and it removed the status of Arabic, the language that the Druze speak and use, from a national language to something lesser. Although there are other basic laws that mandate equal treatment for all groups of people, the passing of this law has worried those Israelis and Palestinians who see Israel as sliding towards a binational state where not everyone within its border is equal. On August 4th, 2018, the Druze community went out in force to protest this law. Now to be clear, it does not mean they all stopped serving in the military overnight and many of these protesters carried Israeli flags, arguing that Israel is as much their home as any Jewish person, protesting what they saw as a humiliation and a second-class citizen status. A Druze soldier by the name of Nimr, who had served in the army for 26 years by that point, was one of the many attendants to this protest, expressing a feeling of abandonment by the state. When it comes to military service for his son, he is quoted as saying, he is wondering why he should protect a state that considers him a second-class citizen. What was quite odd about this whole event and the passing of this law was 
that Israeli politicians came out who were defending the law, trying to reassure the Druze people that it does not actually change anything, which then poses the question, why was it then passed at all? In the end, the story of the Druze community in Israel is a complicated one, and Samih al-Qasim represents a facet which we might not see often, but which is significant. One thing that history can teach us is that identities are sometimes created in opposition or in reaction to something hostile, or at least they can be nurtured. The nation-state bill might leave a legacy of younger people among the Druze, who see their Arabic language being reduced in importance, and who do not feel included in Israel's self-determination, are starting to feel more conscious of the Arab aspect of their identity as a result. Now, the closing lines of this short poem are also worth thinking about. From the eye hole of my small cell, I can see your large cell. Whether we are talking about physically incarcerating people or whether we want to be fanciful and talk about a metaphorical imprisonment, there is an assertion in this couple of lines that what a person or a society engages in is then reflected upon it and becomes a part of it, that there comes a point where an action is not just something that we do that is external to us, but that this action becomes a part of who we are. And I'm reminded of a quote by the moral and ethical philosopher Immanuel Kant. Cruelty to animals is contrary to man's duty to himself, because it deadens in him the feeling of sympathy for their sufferings, and therefore a natural tendency that is very useful to morality in relation to other humans is weakened. The extent to which Kant's statement applies to this idea is up for debate, though I could not help finding some relevance. What if, instead of being systematically cruel to animals, a system is set up in which people are systematically jailed, silenced, their movements restricted? Samih al-Qasim seems to say that not only are the victims imprisoned, but the jailers make a prison for themselves. But I will leave you to think on it. Thank you for listening, and until next time.